Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. I'm pleased to be joined by someone I consider uh, a member of my brain trust, uh, Dr. Sarah Place. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So you grew up in, you call it upstate New York, but I used to live in way upstate New York, so I I, I don't know. Yeah, really. yeah. Um, I'm in, uh, yeah, you know, I grew up in central New York, and that's actually where I, I'm at right now is uh, central New York State. So uh, if people are familiar with where Syracuse, New York is, just a bit south there, um, in the rolling hills, lots of dairy cows around part of New York State. Yeah. And and you've got history with dairy cows going back a ways. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I grew up on a dairy farm, uh, not far from where I currently live, uh, 70 cow dairy Um so truly, truly the Red Barn uh, family farm situation, just my parents and my brother and I providing most of the labor there, um, so, <laughs> which is always good. And I always joke that uh, they, they were dairy farmers until uh, I went to grad school, you know, I was the younger child, and so that was the end of the free labor situation. So then they made a, a very wise decision and they got out of dairy farming, right? Because yeah. it's, it's fairly labor intensive, um, but they, they still farm. Um, and actually, my brother's is involved directly in the dairy industry. So I'm the, the one immediate family member that's actually not in production agriculture on a daily basis, but still still involved in the industry for sure. But your brother's dairy is not bovine. Uh, yeah, so he, he does uh, goats. And then he actually, in his quote unquote day job, is a, a manager on a large uh, cow dairy. So he's got two lactating ruminants uh, on a daily basis that he deals with. Okay. Um, the, the small ones and the bigger ones. So, yeah. And again, if we look around the world, we can see buffalo dairy and we can see sheep dairy and yeah. other ruminants have served in dairy globally. So when people talk about global dairy industry, it's multi-species. Yeah. Uh, let alone breeds of cattle. I mean, the, the, yes, exactly. Or getting into some pseudo ruminants uh, too, right? And some camels and everything else, right? There's lots of lots of animals that get milked for sure. Well, yeah, <laughs> reindeer, I mean, well, right? You know, ho yeah. Horses, even, horses, yeah. yeah. Uh, which, if she doesn't want to get milked, I, that's a rough job. <laughs> um, sure. Is so. Uh, 70 cows, you said, for your family's farm. How would that rank today in New York for a size? Yeah, that would be very small So um, compared to today's average. So what's what's happened in the dairy industry is that just because it's a low margin business, it's commodity agriculture, It's you can either diversify and try to direct market, which is, again, what my brother and sister-in-law have tried to do with their goat dairy, or you try to get larger, right, to actually achieve enough margin to, you know, send the kids to college and things like that. So um, I'd say the average now in New York State, I haven't looked it up recently, but I'm sure it's a few hundred uh, at least um, cattle on, on an operation. Um, you know, there's there's some dairies in New York State that are, you know, three, four thousand cows. Um, that's usually about as big as you're going to get around here uh, in the Western U.S. You might get a little bit bigger uh, in a single site. But 
Um, but yeah, that's kind of the the mix. And we still have, you know, right up the road from me, there's a, there's a grazing dairy, right. And they do do some of their own marketing of their own product and they probably have a few hundred cows. Right. So there's, there's a mix of that of where you have more, what we call confinement, uh, operations where the animals spend most of their time in a barn and then operations where animals are still grazed. Um, and you know, for example, like our, our farm is kind of that traditional model of, we had a tie stall barn. You know, as I sit here in uh, January, it's really hard for a cow to find a lot of forage on her own at this time of year in New York state. And oh, similar winter, to a lot yeah. of, yeah, yeah. We have a few inches of snow outside. So it's, it's tough to graze uh, year round in, in some of the traditional dairy states like New York and Wisconsin. So you, you usually have animals in the barn part of the year and then um, they would graze and, and still come in the barn at night is often what we would do. Uh, from a management perspective, and that's kind of that traditional model that was more popular here in New York State. Hay and sock, corn silage and maybe exactly. some haylage production, Yes, the, the cropping. Um, so while we've had this um, reduction in herds, but numbers of animals really haven't changed that much over the last few years, but over the last couple decades, there's been a definite downward trend in numbers of cows, right? Yes. Yeah. For dairy specifically, you know, what, what we've really seen, the drop, the drop really started happening right after World War II. And we, that's when we peaked in the United States for how many dairy cows we had. We had somewhere around 26 million dairy cows in the U.S. at that time. Um, now there's around 9.3 million. And you're right, it has been fairly steady for the last 15, 20 years. We've had a pretty constant herd. Um, so yeah, all that's really happened is that the cows have, have concentrated in certain areas, right, if you will, um, and we're producing ever more milk because milk production per cow keeps increasing every year, and a lot of that's driven by genetic merit, is what we call it, of the animals. Just their, their ability to produce milk has improved or increased over time. And, and maybe nutrition contributes as well. Yes. Yeah. The, that's always the, the story in, uh, in animals, uh, right? You can have a whole bunch of genetic merit, but if you're not providing good nutrition or a comfortable environment, they're still not going to make that much milk, right? So it's kind of, uh, it's, it's both going together. It's uh, the environment plus, plus the genotype, right? Plus the genetics of the animals is how they yeah. actually express it, the phenotype. Yeah, yeah. E, e by G equals P, is that the... Um, yes. And is there any lesson there for human health? I don't <laughs> know. Could there be? Um, maybe, maybe. It, I'm sure there's been rapid ge genetic change in people, right? In the last oh, few years. Yeah. <clears throat> Indeed. Um, <laughs> I heard somebody, and I, I can't recall the, the number, but they talked about the idle acres in New York State, and I would assume other parts of the Northeast where um, a lot of that farmland is not productive in an agricultural sense at this point. And in that eco zone, that means it's reverting to woody species of various merits. And so there's a lot of um, barns that are returning to the environment, to <laughs> the elements, so to speak. Yes. And, uh, that always kind of makes me sad um, to see those buildings. And then at the other point, I realized that those were tools that were built for a specific purpose. And 
that system has kind of moved on and you wouldn't use those barns the same way. You mentioned a tie stall. Yes. Um, yeah, which people probably aren't familiar with what that means, right? But yeah. So why don't you tell us what a tie yeah, stall is? Yeah. So this is kind of the older traditional barns where when an animal was in the barn, they were in a stall. And as tie stall kind of implies, the animals were usually tethered by their neck in some way to the stall, right? So they couldn't walk out of their stall and roam around the barn and cause a mess and cause a ruckus, right? So um, from a standpoint of how we view that uh, from from a behavioral standpoint for the animals, I think people can understand, well, if an animal's tied to one place uh, for a long period of time, you know, there may be some challenges there with them expressing all their normal behaviors, right? They're obviously not going to be able to move around that much, even though they can, of course, stand up and lie down. So that's that's one of those innovations, you know, that has taken place in the dairy industry is, you know, I mentioned that earlier, cow comfort, that's been a big focus, is understanding, hey, when animals are more comfortable, they're going to be a lot more productive, but also it's just the right thing to do, right, and just better understanding animal behavior. So instead of tie stall dairies now, when we have dairy farms that have confinement, have barns, they're typically in what we call free stalls. So essentially the animal can choose which stall she would like to lie down in and she can walk around and get to her feed and you know mosey around with her <laughs> with her pen mates in the pen right and and usually the stall itself is is you know definitely designed for her to be able to easily get up and lie down that's one of the other challenges sometimes with with tie stalls is getting into the uh biomechanics of how cows get up they like to lunge forward and then and then uh, rock back. And so that takes a lot of space. And so those free stalls are designed for them to easily do that. And most of them now they're, they're bedded either with things like water mattresses <laughs> or uh, sand is a very popular bedding material for, for cows. So you can kind of think of them as, you know, laying on the beach most of the day is what they're doing uh, in, in these modern free stall barns. Um, I spent a little time, again, upstate New York, uh, St. Lawrence County. Um, there was a two-year school that I went to. That's where I got introduced to agriculture. And they had, again, one of these old farms. I mean, this, this barn goes well before World War II. Um, and it was built, I think, for, you know, 1940s era Asher cattle. And they were trying to run Holsteins in it. And so it was, it wasn't tie, it was a stanchion, um, but the stalls weren't long enough. No. <laughs> and so you spent a lot of time cleaning the alley with a snow shovel, um, but that's just a digression. So you grew up on the farm, went to college, but you went to college in agriculture. You didn't try to escape it. So there was a desire to kind of stay in it, but maybe in a different yeah. Uh, way. Yeah. yeah. I contemplated doing something in history or something like that, but I ended up staying in agriculture. So I went to uh, a two-year school first, actually here, a SUNY school, SUNY Morrisville, and got an agricultural business degree. And then went to Cornell University for an animal science degree, um, a bachelor's there. Um, so was actually very focused on like the production ag uh, view of it, right? But when I was at Cornell, um, 
did an internship with Cornell Cooperative Extension where I uh, worked with a nutrient management program, right? So nutrient management being, you know, how do you manage nitrogen, phosphorus, these different nutrients that are needed in agriculture, but it can also cause environmental concerns, right? If you're, if you're not managing them properly for water and air quality. Um, so that's really where, you know, I kind of got started of getting my education in agriculture further, um, learning more about production agriculture and the business side of it. But then also, you know, pursuing my interests, which has also always been there because I live in a, a beautiful area, right? I love nature and the, the natural environment and agriculture. And so it just kind of led me to pursuing this, this career, if you will, with uh, the combination of the two. So I'm still on that track at this mm -hmm. point of mm -hmm. combining those two interests. Yeah, natural is an interesting word if we can just sure. get away from yeah. the whole marketing <laughs> side of things. Um, yeah. uh, to some people, nature means anything other than human, which is interesting. But more few people, I think, not enough people reflect on the the fact that the more productive agriculture is the more sparing it is of the rest of the environment, right? We don't have to plow up as much ground. We don't have to cut down as many trees. We, um, and, and hopefully, uh, as, as you've been looking at efficiency, the, the impact that that ha then has on the, the environment, um, writ yeah. large. Yeah. So that's, that's a great, great, uh, highlight of this challenge, right, is that people often talk about that of like land um, sparing versus land sharing, right, and this this idea of what is natural and, and nature is very important there. So we, we really need both, right, where we do need to not obviously use every square foot of land on planet Earth just to feed ourselves, right? I think most people can understand that, but at the same time, and I'm sure we'll get into that, right, especially with ruminant agriculture, nothing is either or. You can have natural habitats and you're still producing food and fiber. Um, and I think that's always what makes it challenging. And, and uh, you know, part of my worldview is just <laughs> that we shouldn't view humans as a separate and apart from nature. Essentially, we're just another animal. We're just, a, we're just an animal that's really good at manipulating our environment, right? So we can have this conversation on opposite sides of the country instantaneously right now, which is a cool perk, but we're still, we're still a part of the environment. And at the same time that we're doing this, you know, the thing that I've learned is 45% of humanity doesn't consumes less than a thousand kilowatt hours a year, yes. which is a large North American refrigerator. So yes. th there are issues that maybe we ought to be paying more attention to than some of the ones that we are, but that may be for a later episode of this. So, um, you from Cornell with your undergrad. Now, did you get your master's at Cornell or? No. So, yeah, I, I graduated uh, for, you know, it was in my last semester at Cornell and uh, wasn't wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. I had a desire to leave New York State. I was thinking of going to California even just to work in uh, nutrient management and then ended up at a conference probably in February of that year that I was going to graduate. Um Somebody came to spoke. His name was uh, Frank Mitliner, which I'm sure people are familiar with, right? This professor at UC Davis and gave a really interesting talk on 
cattle production and been on climate change, but also just yeah, actually smog, which is a big issue in California and just a story of how uh, the dairy industry there was being um, pointed to as a major source of smog forming pollutants. It turned out that wasn't true via the research um, that he did and kind of updated what the California Air Resources Board's uh, calculations were for cattle. But I just found that very super, super intriguing, that whole idea of, hey, there's there's this whole area of research that's happening that really you know, piqued my interest, combined my two interests of the environment and agriculture. And so uh, after Frank got done speaking, I, I walked up to, to him and introduced myself real quick and said, hey, you know, I'm really interested in this topic, uh, you know, would be interested in pursuing uh, you know, training in this, graduate training in this. And I think within 10 days I had applied to UC Davis for grad school. <laughs> so that was the, the only place that I did actually apply and uh, went directly there into a PhD program in animal biology at UC Davis. Hmm. Okay. Um, that, that, that cycle of the accusation, you know, the statement, and then there has to be the work to actually get the information that hopefully then goes back and changes the policy. But meanwhile, everybody thinks that what they've been hearing is true. We're, we're, we, we seem to be always <laughs> behind the curve in this. Yeah. We get stuck in that pattern a lot. Yeah. What is the saying? It takes an order of magnitude more of information <laughs> to overcome. So, and then it's true. It's true. Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, ruminant animal agriculture um, has been accused of being an inefficient way to produce food for humans. And I, I, I know the points that I would tick off as far as refuting that, but I'll give you the chance to start it. How would you answer someone who says we should stop ruminant animal agriculture and we'll, we'll start with the inefficient use of resources argument and then we'll move on to some other ones? Yeah, the whack-a-mole of all the arguments. Yeah, so um, <laughs> I, think the, I think the key thing is just, you know, when somebody says something like that, it's like, well, what, is, what does that mean, right? Inefficiency, how are we defining efficiency? Right? And I think that's where it's always instructive to start the conversation because usually folks are looking at things like what we call dry matter conversion in, um, in animal agriculture. So this is the idea of how many pounds of feed dry matter does it take for the animal when they're consuming it to convert it into a product, right? Whether it's beef or milk or chicken, whatever it may be. And when you look at things that way, right, it does indeed take especially ruminant meat, whether we're talking beef or lamb or goat meat, it will take those animals more pounds of dry matter feed to make one pound of whatever that meat product is. That's absolutely true. But of course, the reality is, is then you have to look at the, the inputs. What is that dry matter? You know, are we, are we managing resources so we have more dry matter <laughs> or do we care about other things potentially? And, and that's where the complexity comes in, right? Is that ruminant animals, most of that dry matter, that feed that they're eating, are things that are not in direct competition with human food, right? And ultimately, I think that's where that inefficiency argument is coming from. It's just as we referenced earlier, 
you know, we have this, this grand challenge. We do have an increasing population. We do have to nourish ourselves and we do, you know, we have the confines of planet earth currently, right? Despite the best efforts of Elon Musk and others, right? We're still, we're still on earth. So we do have that reality, but um, coming back to those resources, it's important to just look at, you know, are these resources that these animals consuming really in competition with other better uses potentially? So, you know, to, to dig into that deeper, then we can say, well, yes, it does take, for example, beef cattle, more pounds of dry matter. If we look at it from a life cycle perspective um, and we account for the cow-calf part of the production phase. So this is the mama cow and her calf grazing on the landscape all the way through when an animal maybe is finished in a feedlot, right, eating a more grain-based diet. Add that all up. It'll take somewhere around 13 to 14 pounds of feed dry matter per pound of, of live weight gain that the animal has as compared to chickens, which maybe only takes two pounds, right? Um, but if we actually dig into what is the chicken eating versus the cattle, right? 90% of what the cattle are eating is actually forage or byproduct feeds. Um, things like dry distillers grains or things like cottonseed meal, materials that are byproducts from other processes, byproducts from plants that we can't eat, that we then feed to livestock and make, or we say upcycle, right, into higher quality protein. So it goes from a ratio of 13 to 14 to one and two to one, then if you actually account for those differences in the feed composition, it's nearly the same in terms of pounds of human edible inputs per pound of live weight gain, right? Across cattle, pigs, and chickens, which is actually pretty fascinating, right? That it is, the ratio is relatively similar. So I think that's one of those places to start with that conversation. You can dig even deeper and get into say protein, um, and the quality of the protein, because that's, that's the other complexity is that's the other advantage of ruminants is what they eat doesn't have to be as high quality feed as compared to what pigs and chickens have to eat because they're like us, they're monogastric omnivores, right? Yeah. So that it gets complicated, but that's, I think, Half the time, it's always, I almost take it personally when people think ruminants are inefficient. It's just like, you don't understand what ruminants do, right? Because they're really cool. They're amazing animals, but we don't want to turn ruminants into monogastric species, right? We, we do finish animals on grain-based diets, et cetera. That does improve the efficiency, but we're never going to likely only feed corn soy diets to cattle. That's not going to happen because that's not what they're good for, right? Uh, that's, that's what monogastric animals are a lot better at doing. Um, and, and that ruminant physiology and just how they're designed is really what explains a lot of these differences. Indeed. And I've heard the trophic level argument, um, where, because, you know, for you lose 10% or whatever the figure is of the feed value feeding. And that's, a version of this, it tends to just look at calories. And again, many people are going to be familiar with the, the, the weakness of just looking at calories. Um, but what that argument ignores <clears throat> is that most of our plant source foods aren't consumed in their natural state. Um, 
they're they have to be processed so how much energy do you have to expend to process the plant source food to get it into an edible form and while you do that as you mentioned there's all the the byproduct feeds or or waste material um you know i, I think the other side of the, another facet of that argument and like you say it, it tends to devolve very quickly into all these rabbit holes, which may be why people use it all the time. Um, but this idea of animal agriculture using all this land that could be used to grow food that humans could consume. So mm -hmm. we established that the animals, uh, what, what was the figure? Something like 16% of what the global domestic livestock herd, well, herd wouldn't be appropriate because it's going to include chickens. Herd and flock, um, yeah. Yeah, herd and flock. Uh, the flurd um, consumes is human, potentially human edible. Some of that may not be because grade makes it not edible, but six, it, it's, it's merely 16%. Now that may have to do with the fact that most of that feed is going into ruminants and only 4% of what the global ruminant herd consumes. So in, in that sense, that's a difference in, in between, like you say, the monogastrics and the, yes. the ruminants. Um, but in terms of the land that's suitable to produce the food that humans could consume versus feed for animals, that's another aspect of this that needs some attention. Yeah, absolutely. So those questions about essentially resource competition, right? Are our livestock eating off our plates, right? Or are they are they adding um, adding to the bounty on our table, if you will? Um, it is about that direct competition, as we were just talking about, right? But then it is the land piece, and that is an important consideration as well. So, and as you were talking, this is the advantage of doing this at my computer, right? I can pull up this UNFAO paper <laughs> that we're referencing, but. Essentially, when we do look at it globally, um, and we look at the total flirt, if you will, global livestock, 86% of what they consume is either forages or all these byproducts that we keep referencing that are not human edible. And then 14% are mostly cereal grains, right, that we do feed to livestock. You know, again, most of those cereal grains are not... Uh, not what we want to eat directly, right? Most of us would not want to eat field corn, uh, but we could if we had to, right? Um, and I think that's one of those things that sometimes gets lost too, is it's not, when you when you drive through the Midwest, you're not looking at fields of sweet corn, right? That's, that's not what it is. Um, so if we look at this paper here, so, you know, essentially the, the direct quote is grains make up only 13% of the ration, right? Meaning the total amount of feed that the animals eat, but represent 32% of global grain production. So it is a larger proportion. It's essentially a third of cereals that are going to livestock. Um, so, you know, that, that is one of those trade-offs, right? But if we, if we don't use cereals, we don't get as much animal protein production. And this comes back to this question that you were, or this, uh, this point about calories you were talking about earlier. And there's always going to be a balance between, you know, our global food supply of <laughs> the way it looks right now, is this more heavier tilted towards calories coming from plant sources and then protein, and especially high quality protein coming from animal products. And ultimately that's, 
because that's where <laughs> that's why we domesticated livestock, right? Is they concentrate nutrients and make energy use energy from plants in ways that are desirable to us, right? And concentrate those nutrients and that protein in forms of food and useful useful outputs that we use, right? Whether it's wool, whether it's draft power historically, um, whatever it may be, right? And that's that's what's super key. It kind of gets back to that that efficiency question earlier of when when people will focus on the energy is the question is like, well, are kilocalories truly the one measure that we should be looking at when it comes to security for food? Right? Um, isn't isn't there some logic there of not of giving up some efficiency of energy, right? Because, and I'm sure we'll get into this with greenhouse gas emissions, but the lowest, you know, lowest carbon footprint diet would just be eating pure sugar cane, right? Or sugar, um, because that's the most efficient way to produce calories. Absolutely. Right. But we know, of course, nutrition and providing a, a robust food supply is more than just calories. And so, that that's probably why this conversation usually goes off the rails is it's, it's all about the shades of gray and there, you know, it's all about a spectrum, like everything in biology, you know, it's a bell shaped curve. There's going to be some optimum somewhere. Right. But either, or doesn't work very well in this conversation. And, and I, I keep struggling to express it, but animal agriculture and crop agriculture is already integrated. Yes. And, and it looks different when you're in Africa or Southwest Asia or North America or Western Europe. In the latter two, it tends to have gotten separated as farming systems have specialized. Mm -hmm. But even there, it's still integrated, but in sort of different operations, different space. So we keep referencing the byproducts in the Pacific Northwest. There's a lot of potatoes produced, for example. And in the processing of potatoes, there's a great deal of waste material that ends up going into feeding ruminant animals. And so in that way, we have, we, we could also see where you were in Oklahoma, there's a fair amount of grazing wheat pasture in the wintertime, but they're still going to maybe harvest a wheat crop from that same land, that same cycle. And so now we have this, it, it, it's not either or in terms of land use for the enterprise. So all of this is, is more nuanced and complicated than typically gets represented. Um, and I'd yeah. also, yeah, we, we also need to recognize nobody just consumes protein. Or just consume. I don't sit down to a big plate full of protein. I sit down to maybe a big piece of steak, which contains protein, but it also contains energy from the fat. It also contains all the vitamins and minerals and nutrients in their most available form. And yet we keep talking about things in this reductionistic approach of so um, let's maybe start moving towards the the yeah. footprint conversation because it's my impression that a lot of those comparisons tend to be pretty simplistic you know we're going to compare pounds of protein from plants on an equal basis with pounds of protein from animals and try to make some environmental comparison 
Yes, yes. And I think just to put a bow on this land question, I mean, the, the way I like to frame it of if we think about land and land land footprints for the same idea of footprints, um, there's kind of three main things and uh, you've, you've just highlighted. One is that multifunctional land use, right? One acre, one hectare can produce plant source foods for people and it can produce animal source foods at the same time, right? It's not either or, as you just referenced. Um, the second thing is the suitability of land, right? Uh, even though I said, yes, a third of cereals are going to livestock, when you look at the total aggregate land use, quote unquote use for all livestock, most of it is for grazing. And it is lands that we can call marginal. I never really like that calling it marginal, but it's it's a lot of it is rangelands, right? Lands are too arid, too rocky, too steep for us to cultivate. Or if we did cultivate it, it would probably lead to poor quality land use. And that's really the third point, right? Is we had to think about not just suitability, but quality of land use. Um, you can do something that minimizes land use, minimizes things in, a, in the short term, but if it leads to a whole bunch of soil erosion that after 50 years, you don't have a productive system anymore, then that was obviously not very sustainable, right? It's kind of almost related back to this, this question or this uh, footprints question about... Uh, <laughs> nutrients, right? You could focus just on solely on one and maybe be okay for a while and then it would, and the wheels would fall off eventually, right? And so that is, that is again, this whole holistic picture that we always had to have. Um, so on the footprint specifically, right? That's, that's where we, you know, when we talk about sustainability, there's always, everything is chock full of value judgments. This is not an objective scientific field, right? That has to be said, you know, right up front because we're, we're making decisions about what we're valuing most. And that's always happening when we think about footprints, because ultimately the simplest way to think about it is it's just a, it's a fractional representation of something. One thing over another, right, is what we're looking at. We can make it an index in the denominator. We can make it a single thing like pounds of protein or kilocalories, right? And that's often what you'll see um, when folks will compare carbon footprints, for example, of foods, it may be greenhouse gas emissions per kilocalorie, right? And if, if that's one of the things you're looking at, that may be a fair metric to look at. But if you say that is truly sustainability, I think that's a bridge too far, right? Because that's essentially saying the most important thing in the world to minimize is greenhouse gas emissions. And the most important thing to maximize is kilocalories, Right. Again, I don't think that's necessarily always going to be true in all situations. So that, that's part of the challenge there, right? And to your point about protein, if, if we look at most publications, it usually is just crude protein that we're looking at, right? Um, and in the, in the nu nutritional feed analysis world, uh, crude protein is just, you know, truly what is the nitrogen content of whatever the feed is, right? And then just assuming usually that protein is 16% nitrogen, right? So we just figure out the total amount of nitrogen. We say, okay, 16% of that's protein and, uh, or, or for protein, 16% of it is nitrogen and then we call it good, right? And obviously as folks will know is there can be big differences there, both in terms of amino acid composition, which is truly what we need and how digestible it is, right? How, how well are you going to efficiently digest said crude protein, right? Those things can vary. And so there are alternatives out there taking that into account. Um, you know, different scores for protein that we can try to look at that. And usually when we do start to correct for that, 
again, some of these, just like with the feed conversion example, some of these dramatic differences start getting a little bit tighter, right, between plant and animal sources, because again, it just makes sense. That's, that's why we have livestock is they make things a lot more digestible for us, typically, uh, from a protein perspective, when we, when we look at protein quality sources. Uh, I'm recalling one of my mentors, um, Carl Hovland, um, and he wrote a memoir of growing up in um, Wisconsin, and his childhood, you know, his parents were actually clearing land to develop. And it was only when the cattle came and their manure came that the land improved. And so today, I think it's something like over half of the world's fertilizer ends up coming from livestock, and most of that's going to come from ruminants. So how does that factor into the whole sustainable food system conversation? Yeah, yeah. And and as I referenced earlier, right, uh, I did that internship in nutrient management, right? That's kind of one of the clunky ways we talk about that. But what's to take a step back, right? There's, <laughs> we can put boundaries around this whole discussion of just thinking about, you know, what the first law of thermodynamics is, right? You can't, you cannot create nor destroy energy or matter, right? So that's important to think about in agricultural systems is that this is why we see a lot of interest in sustainability of reintegration of livestock and crops, right? Because ultimately, if we think about a given plot of land, right, what's happening every single day when it's, when it's not like it is outside for me and there's three inches of snow and everything's not, <laughs> not photosynthesizing at the moment, um, but when we have that, that activity, right, we have a bunch of carbon coming into the system out of the air with, with photosynthesis, we got nitrogen coming into the system being deposited or, you know, we have fertilization, whether it's from the animal manure or a truly synthetic fertilizer outside of the system, the animals or the, the plants themselves are growing, right? So there's this cycling of carbon, cycling of nutri nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus that's taking place. And so what's important with, with livestock is if you have a system like that, right, is as we've referenced with these byproducts, essentially byproducts are we've produced this plant, right? And now we've used a fraction of it. You know, the ratio roughly is for every hundred pounds of human food that comes from crops, we have 37 pounds of byproducts that get left over, right? So that 37 pounds is energy from the sun, right? Carbon from the air, nitrogen, phosphorus, that's now just sitting there. Right? So what are we going to do with that? It makes a lot of sense to run it through an animal and essentially take that 37 pounds of byproducts and capture another fraction of it in the animal, right? As meat or as milk or as wool, whatever it may be. And then that fraction that gets captured can be used by people, right? That's great. But then there's another fraction that comes out the other end of the animal, right? And that's manure. And that can be a great fertilizer source, right? So hopefully that that's clicking. This is probably not the best explanation for people, but essentially we're, we're always just moving energy and nutrients around. That's what we're doing in agriculture. When we get environmental problems, it's because we've concentrated too many nutrients in an area that's not being exported back out to where it, once it came, right? And that can be a fair critique of some agricultural systems where we, we import many nutrients from feed and we do not export equivalent amounts back out, right? That can be a challenge. 
or if we have a cropping system where we're essentially, we can call it mining the soil, right? We are just exporting nutrients. We're growing continuous corn, 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 corn for 40 years, right? And we're not doing anything different. In that situation, you can be depleting the soil, right? Because you're essentially exporting nutrients out. And so hopefully that makes sense. Again, it's, it's about that fractional capture and returning nutrients. And that's where having oftentimes livestock reintegrated actually on the same piece of land, or as you referenced earlier, right, more, more times it can be even regional partnerships where you're moving those nutrients back around to where they, where they came from, right, or getting nutrients back to those, those areas. That's ultimately the, the challenge in agriculture at a, at a macro scale. And there's a, recently a paper out of Brazil um, that referred to fertilizing the pasture during the forage phase of the livestock cropping system, and that the majority of those nutrients would still be there when it came time to rotate into the crop. And that that allowed them to produce more food with fewer inputs on the same amount of land, which is exactly what my concept of sustainability with the understanding that we're stewarding the resource and we're trying to protect, to, to keep nutrients where they need to be rather than moving as one yes. example. So um, it seems to me that too often sustainability, and I'm using air quotes, is only focused on ecological or environmental issues. And I think it would be fair to say that there are other factors that must be considered whenever we're talking about sustainability in a serious fashion. Could you talk a little about? Yeah. So, I mean, there can be many definitions of sustainability, right? In the context <laughs> that you're talking about, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the UN for their, their definition of sustainable development is essentially meeting the needs of the present without sacrificing the ability of future generations to meet their own needs, right? That's one way to look at it. Um, so it is about a long-term focus as we've kind of danced around in this conversation, but it's also about, yes, more than the environment, right? Um, there are different models of how to represent that, but essentially we have to consider social aspects, right? The people part of everything. And we have to consider economics, of course, as well, right? So always, especially when I'm talking to, to agriculturalists, to, to farmers and ranchers, right? It's like, number one, you got to be economically viable, right? Or this, all this conversation sounds good, but who cares, right? Because if you can't stay in business, that's just the reality of what we're dealing with. You're not going to be sustainable. So having a system that's economically viable, but then at the same time, obviously supporting livelihoods of people properly throughout the whole system and creating affordable food. But we, of course, as we've, we've brought up in this conversation, I mean, there's inequalities and other things that can happen there that could be challenges, right? But those are some of the aspects from an economic perspective we have to consider. And then on the social side, you know, this is where things get really squishy, right? Of quality of life, but also culture, Right. And this is where I'd say we have to think about this intersection of human nutrition. And what kind of quality of food supply are we providing? And things like animal welfare. Right. And people's different perspectives of technology use. Right. We've talked about efficiency. Some people that that turns them off immediately when they hear that about agriculture. And so that's why there's a whole wide array of choices when we get into countries like the United States of 
different production systems to meet people's perceptions, right? Or what they want, right? At the more squishy aspects of it, if you will, on the social side, the ethics of it. So all of that is sustainability, which is why it's so hard to talk about, right? Because you're trying to balance all those things at the same time. And hopefully, uh, as people hear that, they realize, well, it's impossible to balance all those things the same everywhere at, you know, at the same time, right? And for this, at the same way forever, right? So these things are always in flux. This conversation is never going to go away because it's a question of how should we feed ourselves? And as soon as we use the word should, right, we've departed the land of objectivity and we're again in value judgments. And so we're balancing all these things and trying to figure out what's best in the given place that we're in and at the time. And it's always going to change. Okay. So (laughs) we've, we, we spoke before we got started uh, and I keep saying I need to just start right off the bat rather than have conversations. But um, indeed we've already covered some of those things that make this sustainability conversation very difficult to have because it can, even if people are sincerely engaged in the process and not using it as the whack-a-mole that you mentioned, um, there's just so many perspectives that people can bring to it that it's it's hard to get everybody to hear each other. Um, one of the aspects that you and it, it's it's not that you invented it, but ecosystem services you introduced me to that concept. So my version of that is that when we have people in North America grazing cattle on grassland to produce beef, they're also providing additional services that they don't get compensated for. Um, Yet they're a benefit to society. And we have people who are saying, oh, but you know that that beef is diminishing people's health and it's contributing to global warming. So therefore, you know, that's a, that's a negative. That's that social cost of. And so what are some of the benefits besides, you know, tasty T-bones um, that are contributed by the beef industry, for example? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this idea of ecosystem services is kind of a clunky way to talk about it, but it's essentially the benefits that we get from nature, right? The goods and services that we get from nature and natural systems um, and from ecosystems, right? So um, this this concept's been around for a while for sure, but it, it has many different aspects. So actually the, the provisioning of food, right? is an ecosystem good, an ecosystem service, right? Agriculture itself is, we can say, again, as we've discussed, natural, what the heck does it mean? But it's not quote unquote natural, right? It's a human manipulation of ecosystems. That's what agriculture is, to enhance the provisioning of food, right? Um, And so when we think about, again, ruminant agriculture, beef cattle production systems um, in the United States and many other parts of the world is they tend to be in less managed environments, right? Environments that are a little bit closer to what their quote unquote natural state was, right? Especially when we think about grassland ecosystems in the Western half of the United States, 
um, from sagebrush uh, high desert areas to more uh, tall grass prairie areas like in the Flint Hills of Kansas, right? So a whole wide array of uh, grassland rangeland systems. In those systems, there's usually very few inputs coming into those systems. So just as we talked about with um, with agriculture, you know, the challenges of nutrient management, in most rangeland ecosystems, we're not fertilizing the ground, right? We're not putting synthetic fertilizer into that system. We're not adding nitrogen and phosphorus. The main inputs were probably the fuel in the, in the cowboy's uh, pickup truck or the <laughs> four-wheeler or whatever they're using, right, if they're not using a horse uh, to go out there. And so really that, those type of systems are very low input. And, and this comes back to this question of, of efficiency before. And sometimes people will say, well, it's low, low inputs, low output, but it, we're not putting a lot into the system and we're getting high quality beef out of these systems. So, um, and as you referenced, so what are, what are some of the other things besides the beef? If we think about a, a system like that, well, we have, we have the regulation of water quality and air quality in those type of systems, right? If we have a a grassland system, we're probably able to capture a lot more water within the soil, right? Have that, that percolation of water down through the water table. Uh, we're probably providing a lot of habitat for natural species, right? And these, these type of grazing systems, we're, we're not just um, producing uh, domesticated animals, right? We have a whole host of species from insects to birds that are probably there as well. It's incredibly important. Um, so yeah, there's, there's so many different ways to think about that. And, and some of those intact grasslands, right. I've heard, I've heard this, uh, phrase of like the Northern Great Plains, especially in, you know, Eastern Montana and just different parts that are not fractionated yet, not broken, fragmented by cropland, those big class, class areas of, of grassland. Um, you know, I've heard that described as the, like the kidneys of the Mississippi, right. Essentially, is it still area that is intact? that is not, again, having a bunch of nitrogen or phosphorus imported into the region. And so from a, from a water quality standpoint, that's one of those services that those ranching lands, mostly occupied by beef cattle, right? If there is the agricultural production happening there, that's, that's an ecosystem service that they're providing. Um, so many, many examples there of, of ecosystem services, but you know, back to your, your point, your question, right? That, that's the challenge is we don't really look at this in a a really holistic way of the costs and the benefits, the social costs and the social benefits completely, right? We, we look at things like, again, greenhouse gas emissions, we, we, could, we could argue in some cases an ecosystem disservice, but we're not looking at all the other positive attributes either. Yeah, so fire suppression is one. There's just the, the, the aesthetic value. I may be biased, Cultural but I, value. Yeah. I, I think, you know, um, the aesthetic value of well-managed grassland is far superior to, I don't know, a, a wheat field. I may be biased, but um, there's a difference there. And, and you mentioned wildlife and um, the diversity. And when we produce feed for li livestock, there's a lot of wild ruminants still in North America. Um, and one could argue that the pressure on them is reduced because we have the herds of domesticated ruminant livestock. Um, so there, there, there's much more to be considered and, 
it won't surprise you or many of the people listening that I want to extend the conversation through the health of the consumer. And there's an environmental footprint to chronic disease. And that's work that I think it's fair to say has only begun to be done and, and needs much more attention. Um, people will say things about the impact of livestock. Well, and typically it's cattle, right? The, 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 again, it gets simplified. It's not all livestock, it's the cows. And it, it even gets to the point where uh, maybe it's my filters, but they want to talk about emissions from agriculture. So they put a cow on the graph. Right. Wait, 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 wait. No, we're talking about all of agriculture here. Why is it just the cow? Um, and you've spoken probably more than you want to about cow gas. That's probably something that we just need to make sure everybody knows which end of the cow the gas is coming out of. But if, if we if we start on a global basis and look at the emissions attributed to all of agriculture and livestock agriculture, what would those numbers look like? Yeah, so, and this is, <laughs> when you start talking about statistics of greenhouse gas emissions, right? It, it, it's, uh, things can get confusing really fast because it's just like the efficiency discussion we were having earlier. Of like, you gotta be certain what is actually in the numerator, what's in the denominator for this percentage, and does it actually apply to what the heck you're talking about? Usually, um, sometimes things don't pass all three criteria, what, what people are actually talking about, and that's where things get confused. Um, so if we think globally, right, the latest numbers that we have, where we have a comprehensive analysis of global livestock production actually relates back to 2010, which is pretty outdated, but that's, that's where we're at. And same actually with the global, official global statistics for, um, from the IPCC for, for greenhouse gas emissions, the, the fifth AR report from, from them. So in that year, we had about 49 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalents that got emitted in the world. So it's a big number that's hard to wrap your mind around, but those are the, the human caused emissions or human attributed emissions. Of that 49 gigatons, 14.5% can be attributed to livestock production. And to your point, Peter, usually when people say livestock, they think cattle, but that's chickens, small ruminants, buffaloes, cattle, all of it together. So that's, that's the global statistic. If we were to look at, um, you know, the, the, it varies, right? But some, some will say all, all agriculture and land use together is like 24% of emissions or it was roughly back then in, in, uh, in 2010. So you could say 14.5% is animal ag and then 10% is crop ag, right? If you wanted to split it very roughly that way, right? Um, and of course, that means actually the majority of all emissions are mostly coming from fossil fuels globally and they're growing. And that's actually the problem when we think about climate change. But I digress, right? If we just want to go down this, this breakdown of greenhouse gas emissions. So when I say 14.5%, it's all livestock. And I, I think I said life cycle emissions. So what that means is we're actually accounting for all the feed that goes to life to livestock, right? So this discussion we had earlier about how many how much cereals are going to livestock, the impacts of growing those crops, the impacts of harvesting those crops is all contained within that 14.5%. 
as is a category called land use change. So for example, if there are pastures established in Brazil, for example, that were recently forests or recently another land use, the lost uh, carbon sequestration potential and the emissions from that conversion are also attributed to livestock. And that's all included in that 14.5%. Okay, so it's yeah. comprehensive. And frequently that land use is a process that ends up with that cattle pasture becoming soybean fields, but it always gets dinged to the cattle. <laughs> But but it's, I digest. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 complicated, right? Because you got to be at the on the ground realities of like, well, why are people doing this? And do, does you not eating beef somewhere in the world actually change the on the ground reality? You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can go you can go really far down a rabbit hole there too. But, but it's that, that's what's for people. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. all in there, and that's the global number. Global number. But so if we, we were to break to it US down, and... so this is where when you read an article, you often, again, people talk about cattle and they'll say 14.5%. But if we truly wanted to break out what's the global cattle number, roughly 6% of global emissions are beef and another 3% are dairy cattle. So if we add all cattle together, it's about 9% of global emissions. And that too, that 9% is a life cycle number. So that includes, again, deforestation, crops, everything altogether. Um, if we wanted to break it down even further, said, well, what about North America, right? US, Canada together, our cattle industries, beef and dairy industries in the, in the United States and Canada, what is our contribution to global greenhouse gas emissions? It's about 1%, right? That's what the North American cattle industry contributes. And again, that's comprehensive. That's all the feed it takes to feed all the beef and dairy cattle in North America. So, you know, that's not nothing. We should work to reduce it. We are, we will. Um, but also I think people can appreciate, right? You could, you could do a Thanos snap and get rid of all the cows in North America and it wouldn't make any difference, right? Of the global greenhouse. What did you call that? A Thanos <laughs> snap? So if you, yeah, sorry. If you're not into, uh, <laughs> Marvel comics. That doesn't make any sense, but oh, okay. yes. Cultural yeah. reference. Sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. No, please, please. Yeah, so, yeah. So th those are the emissions breakdowns at a, at a global. Okay. Level. So, so, yeah. but, but I think it's also important at the same time to say what percentage of the world's beef and dairy animals does the U.S. have, and what percentage of beef and dairy does that contribute to the total to produce 1% of the greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, yeah. So if we look at just beef specifically, you know, it, it'll vary depending on which database you look at of what percent the United States, for example, has of the global cattle herd, but somewhere between 6 and 8% of global cattle are in the United States. Yet the United States produces 20% of the world's beef, right? So that's a that's a big differential there. And hopefully that makes sense because that means our cattle herd is actually more productive in terms of producing more beef per animal than other parts of the world on average, right? So that's part of that, that efficiency that we've been talking about of sometimes I think it's counterintuitive to what people think, right? They think maybe more low input systems. Again, there's always this, this challenge there because sometimes low input's good, sometimes, you know, but in the aggregate, we do have to think about that total productivity and it's more than just 
um, what the animals eat or how they're housed. It's also the genetics of the animals. It's animal health, for example. It's how long does it take um, a cow to get bred back, right? Animal reproduction is very important for uh, uh, sustainability, right? So a good example there is that if we think about the U.S., we are the number one beef producer in the world. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, we, we produced around 27 billion pounds of beef in the United States. Um, and we have a cattle herd somewhere around 94 million head January 1st of, of the year, right? So that's all beef and dairy cattle together. So 27 billion pounds, 94 million head. If we go down to Brazil, Brazil is the number two beef producer in the world. They produce 21 billion pounds of beef, roughly. So 6 billion less in the United States. But their cattle herd size, all beef and dairy cattle together, is like 220 million head. So Brazil has over twice as many cattle as the United States, and they produce less beef. So hopefully that makes sense. This is where these differences come in globally. And so we can use global stats, and we can talk about things globally, and that's useful on a global scale. But as that example just illustrates, if we took a global stat and applied it to the U.S. or applied it to Brazil, it doesn't make any sense anymore because now we've Again, right. our numerator and our denominator aren't lining up to what we're talking about, right? right. So that's where if we want to have these discussions regionally, we have to use regional stats because things are very variable around the world. Well, and it also points to we could uh, – some people entertain the simplistic notion that eliminating livestock agriculture would make a meaningful reduction in emissions globally. And it's important for people to understand that, in fact, improving the productivity and efficiency of existing systems globally would make a greater impact in reducing the emissions. And then there's the reality of too many people in the world don't get enough animal source food. Um, and so increasing the efficiency would likely lead to an increased productivity while lowering the emissions in this case. And then we'd have to look at the other factors as we've been talking about. So I think it's really important for people to get all of this at least hear it if they don't fully grasp it. And uh, we we should talk at some point about where people can go for more information and good accessible sources. Maybe now's a good time. But I do also want to touch on um, there, there, there's this question, oh, okay, so in the U.S., just to look at U.S., um, we have a segment of the emissions budget that's labeled agriculture, and that's somewhere around 9 or 10%. And yet, at the same time, we have estimates for the amount of carbon sequestered already in the U.S. under current practices, under U.S., uh, under ag, forestry, land use, so let's get an idea of where we are in terms of that budget uh, and then talk about some resources for people to look for. Yeah. So if we look at the EPA greenhouse gas emission inventory that comes out every April, you know, roughly, as you said, right, roughly 9% of emissions are coming from agriculture, which is all crop production, all, um, all livestock, 
and of that, it's, it's a, a split of roughly 5% coming from crops and 4% coming from livestock. Right? Which includes the crops grown for the livestock, that 4%? No, it does not. It, okay, no. it includes, okay. And this is the, yeah, the challenge with the U.S. EPA inventory is it's all di- what we call direct emissions, right? So directly attributed to. So you would have to do some guesstimate there, right? Probably if we if we allocated the crops split them between the two, whatever it may be, it may be six, six and a half, seven percent for livestock. I don't, you, I don't know. That's a, that's really throwing spaghetti at the wall there, right? Because yeah. that is not yeah. a, that's is not a quantitative analysis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. But ultimately, like we said, right, it's all integrated and, and that's where it gets tricky to allocate between the two because nutrients are cycling between them. Um, but that's the nine percent. Right. And as you said, we also in the EPA inventory on the sinks, what we call carbon sinks side, we have agriculture, uh, agricultural land use, land use change and forestry. That if we look at that category, removes carbon every year out of the atmosphere, which is equivalent to removing essentially 11 percent of the total greenhouse gas emission inventory. Right. Now, the fossil fuel sector may want to claim that land use for themselves, right? But if we did just look at agriculture plus those removals and we added them together, it would be a negative number, right? We actually remove more total carbon emissions from all the land use food fiber activities, right, in the United States than we add. Yeah. And one more thing to hammer on is that the emissions are of a different type depending on whether we're talking about biogenic or the transport power other energy uh, other industries yes yes this this gets complicated right but if we think about you know we've kind of referenced uh, ruminants and yes they produce methane they mostly belch out the methane it comes from their mouth um, and methane is one carbon and four hydrogens and if we think about where did that carbon actually come from in that methane molecule, well, it recently came from a plant, right? It was in the plant, captured the carbon from the air via photosynthesis. And when the, the animal eats that carbon, some of it gets retained in the animal, some of it gets excreted out of the animal in the form of manure. A lot of it gets respired, just like you and I are respiring photosynthetic carbon at the moment. Um, and then that small fraction, you know, somewhere around one or 2% of the carbon gets emitted as methane. And then what happens to that methane when it gets into the atmosphere is after about 10 or 12 years, it will get broken down, it'll get oxidized in a whole series of reactions to CO2. And so we can think about that cycling of that carbon atom is it's just cycling around, right? The concern is that the ruminant is converting it to a higher global warming potential gas temporarily in the whole system. Right. And so this comes back to this question of balance and are we dramatically increasing the total rumen capacity in the world is ultimately the question. Are we dramatically increasing total methane emissions that are coming from ruminants? Right. And that that biogenic carbon source or not. Right. And in, in the United States, it's hard to point to enteric fermentation in ruminants as a major source of driving up methane concentrations in the world just because our ruminant herd has been going down for decades, right? So it's really hard to, to make a direct correlation. You can get more into the weeds. You can look at manure methane from dairies, from swine operations that has increased according to the EPA, right? So again, it's not, it's not that we shouldn't pay attention to methane. I wanna make that very clear. We should, in any place we can reduce it, it's good. But 
hopefully people are gathering all this, like agriculture has a role to play. It has a positive role to play in climate change. It can be part of the climate change solution. It is not the major driver of climate change. It is not the biggest source of carbon emissions, right? That's true globally. That's true here in the US. And the other, you know, again, thinking about costs and benefits, you can't have something that's 100% efficient. There, there will always be nutrient losses. There will always be emissions. The question is how the whole system is functioning and the reality that we got to eat, right? We got to feed, we got to feed ourselves. This is not an optional activity. Um, so we had to balance all those realities at once when we had this conversation. Excellent. Um, yeah, there's a lot more to cover here, but this is probably enough of a serving for for one break. Um, where could people find, where would you suggest people go for, I, I struggle with the right adjective because I don't want to label things uh, necessarily, but but the information that could help people become better informed on the subjects that we've been talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, some of these statistics um, that are related to beef in the U.S., the, my, my prior job before working with Elenco, I was uh, with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And so that, that organization has a really good website um, called beefresearch.org. That if you go onto that, you will you will be directed to click on a beef sustainability page, and there's a whole bunch of fact sheets on a lot of these topics that we've discussed in more bite-sized chunks. And also, those fact sheets, you know, they lead you back to the primary sources as well if you want to actually get into the the scientific papers. So that's one good resource that's out there that is beef focused. Um, I think the the Clear Center at UC Davis is obviously another great resource, right, in terms of um, explainers of some of these topics, especially around environmental topics. And so if you just, if you Google that, you will, you will be directed there. Um, th those are great resources for sure. I think uh, Frederick's website or Frederick Leroy, or however you say his last name in the French accent, uh, <laughs> is probably a good one to go to do a deeper dive in some of these topics as well. And again, for, for anyone that's really interested all those, all those resources will, will lead you back to the primary sources. And I think that's what's important and, and reading those with, a, with an open mind and realizing that all this is in flux. That's truly the way of science, right? As we learn more, we'll, we put more out there. Things are not static. Um, and, and it is more looking at it holistically in the whole, the whole big picture because we're, we're at that stage now, especially even in the peer review literature, you can find a paper that fits your bias whatever it is, right? So it's always good to to look at the thing, everything in an aggregate and realize that there is no perfect answer, but you know, these are some of the complexities in this space. And one last thing, would it be fair or would it just be my bias that some of the conventional wisdom about what constitutes a healthy diet is playing a part in a large amount of this conversation? Um, about what we should be eating or therefore producing and global issues. Is that a That's fair. It, there, you cannot pull apart people's perceptions of nutrition, their perceptions of the ethics of animal use and the environment today. They're all completely muddled together. And, um, and I think that's why when you, you know, if you want to have a robust debate, say something about meat on Twitter, right? Even in today's environment, you'll, you'll get some responses, right? And it's just because no, people really? have, yeah, 
people have strong feelings about it on all sides. And I think that's, that's really, that's really why it's because all those issues are all tied together and questions, again, ethical questions, morality, all sorts of things get lumped together. And again, it's, it's hard to separate out what are truly knowable things and what are things that are essentially based in, in each of our own uh, values, which is again, totally fine, but we need to sometimes delineate which is which when we have these conversations. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate what I've learned from you over the years, and it's always great to spend a little time visiting. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it.